Well, let's begin First Peter. Now, I hope Fred sent this out a couple times. Uh, I hope you download it or have it on your computer or phone or have a hard copy or whatever. I, I want you to take a look at the first page if you have access to it, simply to show you a little bit of the chronology of Peter's life. I think it's important for us, and the way you know, I've outlined, just a little bit about the author, the date of this epistle is probably about A.D. 63. Okay? It's near the end of Peter's life. But this chart, this little timeline chart here that you have, let me go through it real quickly. At the top are obviously the years, and right below the line are the different Roman emperors. Now that's important, not you know, to bore you with history, but that's really important because what Rome is doing is affecting the church. And particularly when we get to Nero, it is Nero, who was not a very nice man, it is Nero who will arrest Peter, I don't mean personally, but his stormtroopers, will arrest Peter and execute him. And by the way, they'll do the same thing with Paul. But what this, what this timeline then below the timeline with the arrow that's vertical arrow that's heading up toward the timeline just identifies the key, not all, but the key event in Peter's life. Okay? And that, that very important event in the Council of Jerusalem, which is about halfway across the timeline, that Council of Jerusalem, which is recorded for us in Acts 15. Because the first 15 chapters of Acts, you know what I mean by Acts, don't you, that, that New Testament book, are about Peter. After the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter disappears. Peter is not mentioned from chapter 16 to 28 of Acts. And Peter isn't mentioned in any of the New Testament epistles, save one, Paul mentions him in, in, in 1 Timothy. But then he writes these epistles near the end of his life. So we, we can only speculate on what happens to Peter after the Jerusalem Council uh, in the end of the 40s until he is rearrested and then executed. So there's about a 20-year block. We're not sure what Peter's doing. There's a lot of extra tradition and so on. That isn't important for our, 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 our class at all. But I just Peter is really an important figure in the first 15 chapters of Acts and, of course, in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, if you look at the listing of the Gospels, in the Gospels, the listing of the disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every listing of the 12 disciples, whose name always appears first? Peter's. His name always appears first. Peter was part of that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. But let's talk just a little bit. I hope you know enough about him from just your reading of the, the Gospels. What words would you use to describe Peter in the Gospels? This is before Pentecost, before he starts preaching and ministering in the name of Christ in the early years of the church. When he's with Jesus, those three years, what words would you just use to describe Peter? Doubter. Doubter, mm, at times. Boisterous. Boisterous, that's a great word. Soldier. Say it again. Soldier. Soldier, okay. Tempestuous. Tempestuous. Impetuous. Impetuous. <laughs> Both fit. Impulsive. Sometimes it's almost like Peter speaks and then thinks. You know, uh, 
my grandmother used to say, don't open your mouth until you've thought about what you're going to say. Well, what seven-year-old does that, for goodness sake? Well, Peter was like that. He would say things, you know, like Jesus says, I'm going, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, executed. And I'm going to rise again. No, you're not, Jesus. We're not going to let you do that. You know, the entire Old Testament says that's what Messiah is going to do. Everything Jesus was saying, Peter, no, you're not. I'm not going to let you do that. And then he's hearing Jesus predict. Okay, Jesus, I accept it. But I'm telling you, Jesus, I will never leave you. I will always stick with you. No, he doesn't. Just like the other disciples. He runs and hides and denies Jesus in the court of Caiaphas. So that's Peter, and yet he becomes one of the great leaders of the church. How do you explain that? The resurrection and the Holy Spirit. Those are the two things that explain the change in Peter. So as we read this book, as we study this book together in the... We're going to do First and Second Peter, so that's probably going to take us to Christmas at the rate this class goes. I mean, it, or it's certainly going to take us deep into the fall, <laughs> at the least. So as we start, I want you to just keep remembering, and I, I think you can do this, what Peter was like and what Peter became. One or two other quick things. Um, what was Peter's occupation before he became a disciple of Jesus? He was a fisherman. He and his, what was his brother's name? Andrew. Andrew. He and Andrew were of a, part of a family. They were both born in Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, up in the north. Then, for reasons that we don't exactly know why, they shifted the center of their fishing business to Capernaum. And Capernaum would become the base of operations for Jesus' public ministry. That was the center of his ministry, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so Peter was a fisherman. And from what we can infer, he and his brother Andrew had a very successful fishing business. As a matter of fact, I wish none of you have done that, but I, I've led tours of every year we go to the Middle East. And I always took people to Capernaum. And in Capernaum, you visit the synagogue that's there, the synagogue that Jesus would have princed in, and you simply go a little bit to the east, and right there's Peter's house. Without question, that's Peter's house. Because remember, Peter was married, and Peter took his wife with him in his early ministry. Paul refers to him in that way, and so on. So Peter is the kind of individual that is probably closer to most of us than Paul. I mean, Paul's the intellectual, highly trained, a Greco-Roman education at the University of Tarsus, and then a great Jewish education when he studied, studied under great Rabbi Gamaliel I. That's not Peter. Peter had no formal education. That doesn't mean he was dumb, because to be a successful fisherman in Capernaum, you had to know three languages, and you had to be able to be a good steward in business. And that was Peter. So Peter knew Greek. Oh, yes. A highly polished form of Greek. Peter was a good writer. 
And apparently, Peter linked up with Mark, and, and this is a, bit, a little bit beyond our class, but the main source of, of Mark's, in terms of what Mark, when he wrote the, the, his gospel, because remember, Mark was the first gospel written about A.D. 49. The source of Mark's gospel was Peter. Mark and Peter were very, very close. And so I'm saying all that because Peter's a very strategic figure. <clears throat> Near the end of his life, he writes this epistle. And if you look at the map that's on page three, actually, yeah, page three of your uh, packet, I give you, it's a map here of um, the Eastern Mediterranean. And he tells us at the beginning of, of chapter one of, of 1 Peter, he tells us he's writing to the churches in Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia. He's writing to these churches in the eastern part of what today would be Turkey, but then was the eastern province of, of Asia, a Roman province. Why is he writing to these churches? We don't know. Why does he choose these? We don't know. Perhaps, and more probably, he ministered there, and here's what's happening in those churches. And these churches are experiencing relentless persecution from the Roman governor of this province who hates Christianity. And so this little book, and the one that follows we call Second Peter, was written about how do I respond to persecution and suffering? That's really what it's about. What's the theology and doctrinal convictions I should have in a world where there's persecution and suffering? That's what this little epistle is all about. It's like, how do I encourage these people? Yes, exactly. They are really going through a rough time. It's costing them to stand for their faith. It would be like you and I writing a letter. Now, you and I don't write on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it wouldn't be quite the same. But it would be you and I trying to encourage a Christian in northern Iraq. And there are Christians in northern Iraq. Yeah. Not many. So many of them fled the horrible war that's been going on there. Or in northern Iran, where according to Joe Rosenstein and some others, a massive, massive revival of the church is occurring in the northern part of Iraq, where hardly, hardly is the government of Iran interested in them, as you know. So what would you say to them? So Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, turns out this little letter to uh, these little churches in the northeastern part of Anatolia or Roman province of Asia, what you and I today would call Turkey. Right. So question, if, if, assuming he wasn't very literate. No, that would not be correct. That would not be correct. That would not be correct. So then why didn't he write a gospel? Uh, you have to ask the Holy Spirit that when we get to heaven. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I can't answer that question. I, I do not know that. I do not know that. The This was one of the critics, at, not, not too much anymore, but um, you know, well, how could Peter, a fisherman, write a book like this? Because it's a fairly highly polished Greek. This guy, it, it's a, it's, he knows what he's doing with the language. But again, I mean, again, because we've come to understand that a lot more. If you're going to be if you're going to be in the fishing business, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, you had to know three languages. You had to know them well. 
You had to be a good steward of business because it was a highly competitive business. And that's Peter. And so, you know, just because he didn't go to the University of Tarsus, like Paul did, doesn't mean Peter was stupid. Because the typical person in the ancient world did not go to a formal college. It doesn't mean they're stupid. All right, that's the background. Uh, There's a lot more we could do, but I think that's enough for now. In some of the background, reminding you who Peter is, a little bit about his character and temperament, and a little bit about, at least I hope you remember some of that, you know, his life changed when he comes and follows Jesus. He's one of the first disciples Jesus called, he and his brother Timothy. As a matter of fact, Andrew came to Christ first, and then he went and got Peter. Mm-hmm. And he says, I found the Messiah. And Peter says, oh, sure you have. Well, he follows Peter, uh, follows Andrew, and, and, and as you know, also becomes a follower of the Lord. All right, I'm ready to start the book if you are. We have a good seven minutes, so you paid for them. Let's use them, all right? Verse 1, 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, an apostle? Stronger than that. Stronger than that. Ambassador. Getting close. Say it again. He's been with Jesus. All right. Before and after. Uh An apostle is someone commissioned with authority to represent someone. Would that mean a disciple? Yes. But that's disciple and apostle are not necessarily synonyms. All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. We would be disciples. We would be disciples, but none of you are apostles. In Acts chapter 1, the primary criterion of an apostle was to have seen the resurrected Christ. Peter meets that qualification. How does Paul meet that qualification? The road to Damascus. The road to Damascus. He met the resurrected Christ. But it's, it, again, it's also, it's commissioned. Apostolon, in Greek, apostolon means sent out one with authority. So an apostle is a sent out one, someone commissioned, but sent out one with authority. Jesus says, I, he sends these guys out, I'm giving you the authority And then he lists the things that they have the authority to do. So when Peter says, I'm an apostle, it's just not disciple or a representative. It's one commission, one sent out with the authority of Jesus. Let's go a little bit further. Yeah. Did he commission them, he commissioned them to give them the authority and the ability to perform miracles? Correct. Correct. That really sets them aside. Exactly. That was part of that. And Jesus, I'm sending you out with my authority to do this, to heal the sick, to raise the dead even, and so on. And and that's what they did in those early years of the church, until the scriptures are completed, canon is completed, and so on. And you remember, um, this is a very famous story in the book of Acts. Peter and John are in Jerusalem, and they see a beggar. Remember? And he, he wants... He wants, he's a beggar, so he wants Peter and John to give him. And, Jesus, and Peter, Peter says, silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Did that guy rise up and walk? Yes. yes. 
I mean, it's just it, what Jesus said you will be able to do. It's not like Peter says, I'll get back to you on that. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Immediately he says, I don't have any money to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. It illustrates an apostle. It illustrates the authority of the apostle. And so Peter unashamedly says, I'm an apostle. Nobody questioned that. Now, as we were mentioning a moment ago, and it's in the little map there on page four, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, if you look at the map, you can see they're all in the eastern part of Anatolia, or what we today would call Turkey. Now, there are two things that I want you to notice. Number one, I'm reading the ESV translation. They translate it dispersion. To the elect exiles of the dispersion. Is that how most of you have it translated? Okay. NIV scattered. Okay. What is it? Scattered. Scattered. Okay, good. Scattered is it. It's literally in Greek, it's diaspora. Okay. Scattering of what? The scattering of the church. The church is spreading out. Remember, remember, remember Acts 1.8. Jesus is about to go back to the Father. He's got the, the, well, the 11 now, but he's got the disciples there, and he says, all authority I give unto you. Go first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. You could outline the book of Acts based on that verse, because that's exactly what they do. So where does Acts 2 start? They're in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost, and Peter preaches. <laughs> and then you get, and then by the time you're in 8, then it's throughout Judea. Then in chapter 8, he's up in Samaria. Well, all I'm saying to you is, what Peter is saying is to those who are scattered now, the church is scattering. And one of the causes of the scattering is persecution. The more the church was persecuted, the more it spread. Why? Because if you're being persecuted and threatened and some of your buddies are being martyred in this city, what do you do? You go to another city. <laughs> and that's why one, one historian, uh, he was an early historian of the church, his name was Tertullian, uh, the, the seedbed of the church was the blood of the martyrs. The thumb of persecution comes down, what happens? It spreads. And so that's all he's saying. Now, what you are stumbling over isn't any of that. It's the elect exiles. That's what you're stumbling on. And that's what Fred was asking me in the elevators we were coming up to class today. Let's take, again, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Let's take the word exiles. Exiles. Strange word, isn't it? He doesn't refer to them as saints. He doesn't refer them to as holy ones. He doesn't refer to them as disciples of Jesus. He calls them exiles. Why? What's an exile? Today, if you hear the word in newsflash or something about exile from Syria, what does that mean? Cast out, cast out thrown out. Um, 
you know, they, they can't stay in their home for whatever reason, and of course in Syria because of the horrible civil war going on there, whatever. So they're exiles. It's not their real home. Now you can do that. You can do that, humanly speaking. But you can also do that. Look at that, eternally speaking. In Philippians chapter three, verse twenty, Paul says, "You are citizens of a new kingdom." What kingdom? The kingdom of God. Right? right? So you and I, if you've put your faith in Christ, you're citizens of the kingdom of God. So therefore, you're an exile. Your, your, true, your true citizenship now is in heaven. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, but that is probably part of what Peter has in mind here. You're not only in exile because of the persecution and all that's happening in these... Uh, tumultuous decades of the early church, but it, it also because he'll refer to this later on in in this epistle. You really are aliens. That's the word he uses. You're really aliens. Which now you're thinking of you know ET that kind of thing, extraterrestrial. But that's not. It's in the sense that your home is here. My father's ninety three. He's very sick and and just. You know, I just talked to him. His birthday was Saturday, and I talked to him. And my, my dad, every time I talk to my dad, this is what he says: "I just want to go home." He doesn't mean one fourteen Hayes Avenue where he lives. He means going home to be with Jesus. He's sick. He can't do anything. He's an invalid. He just and he said, "Why isn't Jesus taking me home?" So my answer is, "Well, Dad." The Lord still has more for you to do. But I can't do anything. Dad, can't you pray? Your son's in ministry. You pray for me. That's important. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I can't answer that question. The Lord knows that. This idea of just drawing a railroad track, and I put it on a piece of paper. Um, I don't remember why I thought of it that way, but I did. Uh, It doesn't really matter. But anyway, and I thought, you know, for a train to run... There have to be two tracks. They're parallel. Um, they're perfectly parallel. And when you stand on a railroad track and you look toward the horizon, it looks like they're coming together. But as long as you're walking on the railroad track, you have these two perfectly parallel tracks. And so what I concluded in using this illustration, one of the tracks in the railroad track is divine sovereignty, God's sovereignty. And the other track is human responsibility. If you want to call that free will, you can. Uh, I don't like that phrase, free will particularly, but anyway, whatever you want to do with that. But that's where, so what we're saying and what I'm saying, what the Bible says is both are true. See, that creates a lot of tension for us, doesn't it? Because what you want to do is you want to say it's either divine sovereignty or it's human responsibility. We're either totally free agents, where expressive individualism and autonomy is the rule of the day, or we live in a fatalistic universe where absolutely everything has been determined and we're just like robots. Does the Bible teach any one of those? Does the Bible teach either one of those? No. The Bible teaches both. And see, that's the challenge for us. That's why I like the railroad track, because as long as we're on the track, we look up at the right, they're coming together. But as long as we're walking, they're parallel. 
And so you can stretch the metaphor out. When we get to heaven, they'll come together. Maybe we'll get it then. I don't know. But this creates enormous tension for us. And theological systems have been developed in 2000. It actually goes back even to the rabbis before Christ, where they either focused exclusively on this or focused exclusively on this. So here's, here's the point I'm making. When Peter says you're elect exiles, which railroad track is he focusing on? He's focusing on divine sovereignty. So that's important. It's an important conclusion for you and me, even in 2017. You and I do not live in a random universe. Do you understand that sentence? You know what random means? Where things just happen. There's no reason, there's no purpose, things just happen. You know, the Bible simply does not allow us to reach that conclusion. That randomness is driving this universe. It just does not allow you to reach that conclusion. You can reach that conclusion. I'm reading a book by Tim Keller. I don't know if you know him. He's one of my favorite authors. But uh, his, it's a new book, and it's called Making Sense of God. He'd written another book several years ago called Reasons for God, but this making sense of God. What he's trying to do is he's trying to say, it's written to the skeptic, that's subtitle, <clears throat> giving answers to skeptics. But uh, you know what skeptic is? Someone doubts everything about faith and so on. And he's just saying, all I want you to do is consider how the Bible presents these things. Because you, one of the chapters, you have a choice. We either live in a random universe where things just happen, or we live in a universe where there's purpose and meaning. Things don't just happen. And so, um, Viktor Frankl, I don't know if you know that name, Viktor Frankl was a Jew of the Holocaust who survived the Holocaust. And if you know anything about Jews who came out of the Holocaust, that was a tremendous challenge to them. Elie Wiesel gave up his faith. He said, there can be no God who allows something like this to happen. But Viktor Frankl came out of it. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankl says, what really struck me, being in the concentration camps and seeing people die that were my family, friends, there has got, this cannot just be the triumph of evil, and it cannot just be randomness. There has to be a meaning to all. You see, the typical ordinary human being doesn't even want to think like that. They don't want to consider things like that. I just want to live my life. Expressive individualism, autonomy, that's what drives people. But when you come to a crisis in life, or a tragedy in life, or you get older, all of a sudden those things become important. So what Peter is doing is he's saying, you're suffering people, because that's why you're exiled. And he's going to address suffering as a major part of this, this book. I want you to make sure you understood, when you understand that you're elect. God has chosen you. It doesn't negate the human responsibility, the responsible freedom to respond to God's gift but you have been chosen by God. And he embellishes that in verse 2, which I'll get to in a minute. Now, some of you 
maybe don't want me to get into this deep theological weeds. But if you don't get into the deep theological weeds, you don't get the answers to the questions that life poses for us. And sooner or later, every human being must face these challenges that life brings. You know, 20-year-old kid just out of college or 21 or 22-year-old kid just out of college, just starting their life, these are not the questions they're asking. These are not the questions they're concerned about particularly. But uh, some are. But as you get older, these become really foundational questions. So I laid a lot out for you in, in the first 12 minutes of our class. So any questions? Yeah, right. So can we say the, the, the omniscience of God does not preclude our human responsibility for making a decision That's right. as to Christ? That's right. Can you take that back? Because I was thinking about this in a study. Can you take that back to Old Testament where we didn't have um, the comfort as we do in the New Testament? And how does that work in without the cross and Christ and his shed blood for our redemption today, New Testament versus Old Testament? What's the redemptive aspect of those in the Old Testament? Well, it still, it still boils down to an essential issue that is part of the human, dish, human condition. Uh, things are a mess. You know, I'm serious. Things are a mess. There's war. There's tragedy. There's disease. There's sickness. There's accidents. There's hatred. There's, um, uh, there's greed. There are all the things that create disorder and chaos and dysfunction in life. How do I deal with that? Abraham faced that just like you face it 4,000 years later. Um, King David faced it just like you and I do 3,000 years later. I'm saying that because those same issues are there. Life is a mess. No matter how you are, wealthy, position, at some point, life's a mess. You're going to get sick. You're going to die, no matter how wealthy or how poor you are. And so you've got to face those things. Okay, how do I resolve them? God enabled the resolution of that by smashing into history and establishing a moral law. We summarize it as the Ten Commandments. And making an opportunity for people to have a relationship with him. How? Through the blood sacrifice, which atones. The word atone means cover. So in, before the cross, if you want a relationship with Jesus... That is, that is, or with God, that is how you have that relationship. Uh, when I, I have only taught it one time, but when I taught the book of Leviticus, which is not a book I think we will ever study in this class particularly, but studying the book of Leviticus really helps you to understand why Jesus came. It really, it really does. Because if you want a relationship with God, the sacrificial system which atoned for sin and then the life that he asks us to live, based on that is sanctification. It's walking with him in holiness. But it's a daily regimen. It's, it's object lessons are everywhere in Leviticus so that whatever a Jewish person did in the Old Testament, it was to cause them to think about God. 
when they're making their, their clothing, when they're cooking their meals, you know, the kosher, whatever you're doing it to cause you to think about God. Because he is the creator, redeemer, and sovereign Lord of the universe. And that's the relationship he wants. And when Jesus comes, the book of Hebrews says it, it was a once-for-all sacrifice. That old system has been replaced by, the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. Peggy and I say this at least 12 times a year, meaning at least once a month. We're so thankful we were born on this side of the cross. I mean, that's just an act of God's grace that we were born after the finished work of Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Maybe you've ever even thought about that. But I mean, that's just, that's really wonderful. <laughs> and that we have all the promises of the new covenant uh, with the coming of the Spirit and all of that. It's all available to us. We just pick it up, pick up the gift on the table. Anyway. We're still in verse one, but go ahead. <laughs> that's all right. I have the same Bible, uh, and in the introduction of First Peter, it says this letter was written to encourage the believers to endure the intense persecution of both the prevalent and prepare the readers for difficult times ahead. True. Because there was a lot of Christians being killed in another part of the world, mm -hmm. and uh, and it really gets tougher later on. That's right. But, uh, you know, even today, there's Christians being executed. Oh, absolutely. If they don't deny being Christian. That's right. No, absolutely. And, 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 and I think this is encouraging. It this is. This is meant to encourage them. Is that correct? If you, if you distill it down to one basic proposition, Peter is asking these believers to see themselves the way God sees them. And that brings comfort and encouragement. And so he builds on this elect idea. He builds on it. Now, this is the grammar. And the verse 2 begins with this phrase, according to, in Greek, that's kata. That's always a preposition that introduces a standard. According to what? Two things. God's foreknowledge and his sanctification that's available. So you have two things. Now, again, in using the language he's using, he's using the language of this focal point of the railroad track. Foreknowledge is a term of divine sovereignty. It's a term of God's uh, actions and why he does what he does. And foreknowledge, prognosco in Greek, foreknowledge means that it isn't foreseen faith, it's God knows you and loves you. Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Now again, all Paul's doing in that passage, the same thing Peter's doing, he's focusing on this one part, the divine sovereignty part. But I don't know about you, to my wife, my wife, who, when she was young, struggled with self-image issues. She comes to faith in Christ, and the most important thing for her, it's been that way since she's walked with, been walking with the Lord in, in the late 60s, is to see God, to see myself the way God sees me. I'm created in his image. I'm of infinite worth and value. He knows me before the foundation of the world. He knew me, and I was important to him. That's a staggering thought, isn't it? If every one of you around this table has put your faith in Christ, that means... Before the foundation of the world, 
God knew you were going to come into existence because he created you, knew that, that you were going to be a part of his family and be in his son's church, and he has a purpose for your life. So God knows Adam's child that's being knit together in his wife's womb. That's correct. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Did he know some of us were really going to be rascals? He <laughs> didn't catch him up on his blind side, would he? He knew that. Is that right? Absolutely. Wow. And yet, and see, that that gets that gets to this side because I mean I was that way until 1972. I just kept saying I don't need what my parents said I need, what my friends said I need. I was rebelling against everything. I didn't want what my parents said were important in life. Well, I can relate to that. I mean, I just didn't. It wasn't. I didn't know it. I just didn't want it. I absolutely refused to do it until a bunch of stuff happened in 72. And so then I just, you know, I basically, what I said to the Lord in 1972 is, okay, I give up. I'm serious. That's exactly, I give up. Because I made a mess of things. So Lord, let's, let's, I want to start over, but I'm going to start over step one by accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior. So I mean, it's these two things, and it, you can you'll never, you'll never put this together. Some people say you can't put it together, but I, they're they're lying. You'll never put this together. That's why it takes a, a degree of faith. It doesn't mean it isn't solvable. It just means we live. And I hope you understand this sentence. We live with that tension. We live with that theological tension. Do you understand that sentence? And, and it's okay because ultimately, I think, in heaven, we, we, we will maybe understand it. So, so what he does, foreknowledge. So according to, elect ourselves, according to what standard? His foreknowledge. He knew me. He knew about me. He loved me. And then he goes on according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, that second phrase, do you, if you've been around this class for a while, you recognize that word sanctification. That's focusing on now, okay, the result of God's work is this process of sanctification, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then... The, e, the ESV is fantastic here in how they, uh, how they do this. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And he's using language really out of, out of Exodus chapter 24. But as this is who you are according to this standard with this result, and here's the purpose. The four there, the two fours, F-O-R, are purposes. For obedience to Jesus... And the sprinkling, and the verb there is the ongoing cleansing and sprinkling of the Lord's blood. John, in 1 John chapter uh, 1, he says exactly the same thing. It's a continuous present. The blood of Jesus goes on cleansing us from sin. So that's what Peter's done. I mean, in, in two verses, 
He has dumped, using language of the Old Testament and the realities of the New Covenant under Christ, he's dumped it all into one and a half verses. Starting with like dead exile. So, you know, I, in-depth Bible study means you take a verse apart like this to make clear, I hope it makes it clear, and understand it. It's, it's a profoundly deep theological verse. So, do you understand this profound, deep theological verse? Foreknowledge and predestination? No, not necessarily. Um, I heard his question. It was a great question. It's foreknowledge, predestination. There are two New Testament words. Uh, no, they're not synonyms. Predestination means to predetermine someone's destiny. You following? In other words, election, choice, Result or has the consequence of a destiny. What's the destiny of someone chosen? Heaven. Foreknowledge explains election. God's prognosco, God's foreknowledge, his intimacy and love for me is why he chose me. My predestination, my predetermined destiny is a result of that. It's heaven. I mean, you could, it's a lot of things. I'm in his family, I'm in his son's church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but ultimately it's heaven. That's, that's a great question. Does that, does that answer you? You clear on that? Great. That's a very good question. Ed. How do you answer somebody when they, they say, okay, if God knows everything as for the future and he knows where you're going to end up, then. Why does he even allow somebody to be born who isn't going to have faith and will be damned for eternity? Um, he, Paul, Peter will talk about that later on in the book. Um, at one level, Ed, I don't know if I can answer that question. I mean, I, because I'm not God, you know, which it takes about. Uh, a jiffy, you know, jiffy is a hundredth of a second, a jiffy to figure that out, that I'm not God. But um, what the Bible seems to um, say, because the way that question is being asked, and, and, um, and I know the spirit of that, and even the way you're asking the question, that question is asked from this vantage point. If it's true, then this really can't be true because if this is true and God creates human beings through procreation and so on, that he knows will ultimately reject him, then this really isn't true. Because that's really what you're asking. That's really what that person is asking. They're asking the question totally, and they're not going to think like this, but totally from this perspective of their overtract. That's not how the Bible presents it. The Bible presents it in this way. Peter's focusing on this, but every human being has multiple, and I cannot even possibly give a number, but multiple opportunities to respond to the four revelations of God of who he is. His creation, conscience, his moral law, and Jesus. Such that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, when person that has rejected the grace of God stands before him at the great white, great white throne, he says they will be without excuse. 
So you see, in a, in a way, they're asking the question in a loaded fashion to, in effect, indict God and say he's not just and he's not good. The Bible does not allow you to reach that conclusion. In other words, Peter will say later in this book, it is the desire of God that everyone respond in faith to the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Does he give them opportunities to do that? Through creation, through conscience, through his moral law, and through Jesus. Just think of those four categories of revelation. Almost every single day a human being is exposed to those revelations to one degree or another. Nobody is ever going to stand before God and say, I never knew about you. I never knew what you'd done for me. As C.S. Lewis says in his wonderful book, The Great Divorce, human beings choose to rebel against God. Choose. It's an act of their heart. God knows they're going to do that, but God loves them so much, he gives them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And if they refuse the gift, eternity is a reflection of the choice they made while they're alive. You wanted to live your life without me? In rebellion against me? Rejecting everything I've done for you? Then that's what your eternity will be. You will be eternally separated from me. Because that's the choice you've made. And that's the full or biblical way to answer that question. They're asking a question based solely on that. God's unjust. That's really what's in back of a question like that. That God is fundamentally unjust, not fair, and not good. I just know somebody who's just an atheist. Oh, of course. Of course. Of course, that's wrong. That whole discussion, and maybe you answered it, and I'm not quite understanding but I have been hit so many times from clergy, including from clergy, with the challenge. What about the people in Jesus' time that lived in the remote corners of the earth that absolutely no chance to know who he is? Of those four revelations, which would they have been exposed to? Creation, conscience, moral law. That's the answer. That's the answer of the first three chapters of Romans. The, the, the thesis of the first three chapters of Romans, the thesis statement is, is why, why are people rebelling against God and rejecting? Because they reject his creation. Instead, they worship the created thing, not the creator. Conscience, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I mean, that's, that's what Paul said. So his conclusion, every human being stands guilty before God. That's why he sent Jesus. Where does the Holy Spirit uh, fit into these four elements? The four elements? Creation. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Okay. Um, The Holy Spirit, um, Jesus says in John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is continually doing the work of convicting. In theology, we call it um, uh, 
pre-temporal sanctification. I mean, the, the Holy, uh, he is continuing his work of bringing conviction to the human heart using the evidence of God's creation. But Paul says, what do they do with that? Humans suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Bring conviction in the innate sense of right and wrong in conscience. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The clarity that this is a universe based on moral law. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Jesus shows up. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So that's the answer to your question. Uh, he told me you had your hand up. I was going to ask you, but uh, sometimes it's harder for some people who grow up and uh, brainwash from childhood into beliefs that is not in the line with the biblical values and the biblical truth that we have, and it's going to be harder for them. So this is a question that arises all the time. How God is going to judge those who it is harder for them to accept Jesus Christ more than others who grow up in a Christian or Christian community and so forth? Um, the New Testament and Jesus mentions this in a variety of ways. You are judged according to light received. Do you understand what that means? It's a metaphor. Do you understand what that means? Well, if, um, as I was, I mean, I was raised in a Christian home. It was clear, the Christian values, virtues, what I needed to do. I just refused to do it. Um, if I, if I would have died in 1970, before I trusted Christ in 1972, um, and God evaluates my life at the great white throne, uh, is there a lot of evidence that I knew the truth, but suppressed it in unrighteousness and rejected it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Not only creation, conscience, moral law, but Jesus. I was exposed with crystal clear clarity to the message of Jesus Christ. I just rejected it. I didn't want anything to do with it. So you're judged according to light received. So a person that, you know, there aren't many left in this part in our world anymore, but a person who lives in a jungle in a very primitive tribe, like still a few in the Amazon and Brazil or in parts of Indonesia, some of the islands, and you've never heard about Jesus, you've never read the Bible, still accountable? Creation, conscience, moral law. You're judged according to light received. But for somebody like Grok, as a Jew, who knew about Jesus, but for him and his culture, it is harder for him to accept Jesus as It can be. That's right. can so, be. Because he, you know, had been taught since a young age that you don't get out of this. So There's no way Jesus can be the Messiah. Yes. Yeah. So <clears throat> for them, it's harder for them to accept Jesus as somebody who, like you. That's right. It, 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 humanly speaking, it's harder. But as Peter prays in the, in, in the opening chapters of Acts about the wooing ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, it's just, see, we're separating things out, which is okay, but remembering that fundamentally it is the grace of God that we are asked to respond to. Whether we're a Jew who suppressed the truth about Jesus being our personal Messiah for decades, it's still possible. You know, I, um, there's a guy who comes to this class, his wife's brother, um, I think I mentioned this last week, but in Florida, dying of cancer, very, very sick. He, they're expecting him any day to go to be with the Lord. Uh, a week and a half ago, he put his faith in Christ. 
And I mean, he just, uh, he was very sick. He's in the hospital bed and all that. But he basically said to his brother, he said, I just give up. I, I, I thought I was absolutely beyond any hope, but um, you're telling me you're never, and he said, his brother kept saying, you are never, ever beyond hope. It's a simple thing. You pick up, you know, my words, you pick up the gift. And uh, he did. And it was really amazing as she explained to me how just the entire demeanor and countenance of her brother changed. Dying of cancer. He finally gave up. Now, men, we're still not out of verse 2. Would would it be all right if we get out of verse 2? Let me just look at with you then at at the greeting. The greeting of Peter is, is typical Paul. It's the way Paul gives his greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Grace to you. Charis, grace, was a typical Greek greeting, Greco-Roman greeting. That's how they greeted one another. Peace is shalom in Hebrew. That was a typical Jewish greeting. Still is today. I have many friends in Israel and Whenever I talk to them on the phone or email, or whatever, it's always shalom, Jim. <laughs> I mean, it's just that's just so. What Peter's doing is doing with Paul. He just combines the two because grace is what motivates God to act. Peace is the result. You want a life of shalom? You accept the grace of God. If you don't accept the grace of God, you'll never have the shalom of God. Peace with God. The peace of God. That's what he's talking about. It's a magnificent salutation. Like almost every verse of the Bible, even as a greeting, salutation, it's filled with theology. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace is what motivates God to act. His common grace to all humans doesn't just rain on 774 where I live. It rains on my pagan neighbor, my Buddhist neighbor my atheistic neighbor, my Eastern Orthodox neighbor, my nominally Roman Catholic neighbor, and the rest of the people in our cul-de-sac that are naturalist. It rains on their house, too. And I could say, that's unjust, God. I'm walking with you. They're not. Don't let it rain there. Jesus says, the sun shines, the rain comes on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the common grace of God. Why does he add the fullest? Be multiplied. May it may may the manifestations of God's grace and peace continue to be magnified and multiplied and grow in abundance in your life, because God knows no limits to His grace. Paul's favorite word about that is it's so abundant. It's like he uses the word it overflows the riverbanks of life. You cannot contain the grace of God. He's saying the same thing. Peter and Paul were friends. I think they shared notes together. I made that up. That's not true. I don't know if that's true. All right. Um, <laughs> are we ready to start verse 3? We spent, uh, counting last week and this week, an hour on two verses. But they're rich verses. I mean, they're, they're really rich and deep. Any questions about them? Now, if you look at your, your notes on page 4, and, and you can go through each section of, of the first two chapters, because I've preached this, so this is how I, I've, so I thought I'd share it with you. Verses uh, 3 through 12, God's plan for focus on the plan. 13 through 25, 
the product of lifestyle salvation, and then the purpose of God's plan of salvation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We are the priests, the new priests of God in his temple, of which the Holy Spirit indwells, which the Holy Spirit indwells. So it's a great section. So again, as with uh, much of Paul, very much so with Peter, every verse has to be taken apart. At the rate we're going, we will finish, because we're going to do first and second Peter, we'll finish second Peter in 2021. So be ready for that. We're doing that in depth. <laughs> no, I hope it won't take that long, but uh, it probably won't take that long. But what I'd like to do, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to read verses 3 through 5 together, and then we'll go back and take it apart. Again, I'm reading from the new ESV, the English Standard Version. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A lot in there, isn't there? There's a lot in those couple of verses. So what does he do? He does what you often see in the New Testament and you see in the Psalms. He calls on everyone to bless God. Bless, blessing is a call to not only praise him, to, to praise and bless and honor God the Father, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's caused us to be born again. Now, did you notice ESV correctly puts that little phrase, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Caused us, that verb, which side of the railroad track is that? Divine sovereignty side. When you respond to Jesus Christ, he called, but you chose it. So all Peter's doing is he's tending to focus on this side of the track. But did you see, according, there's, there, there again, it's kata. This is the standard. What's the standard that caused God to do this? Choose us, foreknowledge, cause us to be one again. His great mercy. Did he need to do this? Was he coerced into doing this? Was he forced to do this? No, according to his great mercy. Mercy and grace explain so much of what God does. He owes us nothing, but he offers us everything. That's mercy and grace. God owes you absolutely nothing. He, we've chosen rebellion against him. We've chosen to thumb our nose. I don't mean now in your life, but that's how we, but the Bible keeps saying he loves us. 
And he will relentlessly, relentlessly pursue us with his grace. And he's caused us to believe in the gospel of the resurrection. And all that goes with this, that's right. But isn't it interesting that Peter picks up on a phrase that only one other person uses in the New Testament? Born again. Who's the only other person to use that phrase in the New Testament? Jesus. To Nicodemus. Remember in John chapter 3? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Look, you're doing things in your ministry that no man can do. And Jesus says, you must be born again. You know, it's like, wait a minute, that's not what I was saying. I'm saying, you are doing things that no other human being can do. And all Jesus is doing is he senses, you're getting it. You're getting it, Nicodemus. But if you really want to understand all this, and you really want to understand the significance of this, you must be born again. And so Peter, who was numero uno in the list of the disciples, picks up on the same language. And focusing just on this side of the railroad track, because when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he's focusing on this. You must choose. Nicodemus, you must choose this. Here it is. What are you going to do with it? You've seen the signs. I'm preaching now, I'm sorry. You, you hear each of the signs. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, the most important thing for you to do is to be born again. And he said, do you mean I have to go back in my mother's womb, this gynecological absurdity? What do you mean? Oh, no, no, no. Nicodemus, you don't get it. You're a teacher, and you don't understand this? That's taught in Ezekiel 36 and 37. You should know this. It's the Spirit who does it. Did Nicodemus accept it? Yeah, you see, you see, you see him at the, you see him at the end of Christ's ministry. He works with Joseph of Arimathea, takes him down from the cross, and buries him. Kind of neat. I just, I, I'm saying all that because Peter is using that phrase. Because born again is you have to change. You have to experience a new birth. The theological word that Paul uses is regeneration. You must become new. And how does that occur? Please note, because before we get to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's exactly what Jesus said to Nicodemus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have to die I have to pay the penalty of sin. I have to conquer death, which is the penalty of sin through the resurrection. That's how you're born again. Mark. So what is the idea of born again in the Old Testament that Jesus was referring to? Ezekiel 36 and 37. The Holy Spirit. Uh, The new covenant. The new covenant. So the waiting of Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, it's kind of a prophecy about Jesus. That's correct. was part of the theology at that time, just waiting for the Jesus to come. That's back. correct. That, all wrapped around Messiah, all wrapped around the Messianic teaching. The New Covenant is all, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, 37, and all over the place, is always connected to the Messiah. So when Jesus told that to uh, 
Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Uh, he was actually telling him in a way that I am the Messiah. Not in a way, he was directly in a confrontational manner saying, you are noticing the signs that I'm doing and that's why you came to me at night? Nicodemus, I am he. I'm the Messiah. Even though he didn't say it. No, it's so, yeah, and that's the whole point of the book of John. The sign, you can outline the book of John about five different ways. We can outline the book of John around the signs, the sismion, the Greek word sismion. You can just organize it and that's what he's doing. Here's the proof. We can do with the proof. And it's just, and that's why Jesus is he's in his he's in he's an in-your-face confrontation with Nicodemus. You're a teacher and you should know this. I am not saying something that you shouldn't know from the Old Testament. That to be born again is new covenant language that comes from the Holy Spirit, and that's how you not a gynecological absurdity where you and old man go back into your mother's room and get born again. That's the stuff of the new covenant. You should know this. You know that you it's like he's saying, you dummy, how could you miss this? Well, that's correct. And that to me, when somebody says that to me, I take them, it's either in Matthew 27 or it's in Luke 19, when Jesus says to the Pharisees, the Messiah, the Christ, whose son is he? Isn't that a great question? The Messiah, the Christ, and the Greek is Christ. Whose son is he? And they answer, son of David. Is that a good answer? Yes. Is it the right answer? Yeah. But it's an incomplete answer. And then Jesus, the next verse says, and he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. Well, how is it that Yahweh says to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make earth your footstool. Every Jew in AD 33, when Jesus said that, understands Psalm 110 to be referring to the coming Messiah. Because what Jesus is saying is, he's not only the son of David, he's the son of God. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament because it's so messianic. So, Mark, somebody that says Jesus never said he's the Son of God has not read that passage because that is exactly what Jesus is saying. He is forcing them to reach that conclusion. And the text, both in Luke and in Matthew, says, and they were silent. They refused to answer him. They got it. They understood what he was saying. But they didn't want to admit it. So we need to be ready with these answers. Because we oh yes, absolutely. That when you are looking at the exact text that uh, Jesus said, I am the Messiah and the Son of God, if you are asking me for this, you know, you don't understand how the Bible is written and how the word of Jesus means. That's right. That's right. So the Old Testament reference was what? Psalm 110, verse 1. And then Exodus? Or... Uh, for, for which one? Oh, is it, you mean for the new covenant and what he was Ezekiel thirty six and thirty seven? Well, doesn't he also mention uh, when he asks when he wants to get the the uh, borrow uh, to ride on when he says uh, what should I tell them who has need of it? And I think he says at that point in time too, doesn't he? Yeah, the Lord has need of it. The Lord. Yeah, the Lord has need of it. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, it, and it, it, when, in both Matthew and Luke, it's really interesting because that villager in Bethany who owned a cat said, okay. I mean, it's like, okay. I mean, it's really, and it's really because what Jesus is doing there is fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9 with crystal clear clarity. Because Zechariah 9, 9 says, you will know Messiah, he will come riding into Jerusalem in the foal of a donkey. And you can't get more specific than that. Okay. All right. Um, now go back. I'm still in verse 3. Good night. But go back now. Okay. Focus in on the right-hand side of the railroad track. He has caused us to be born again. How? By means of, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. But then notice there's a purpose. Right in the middle, there's a little purpose phrase. To a living hope. <coughs> We're living hope. Um, what does the word, I mean, I, I know we've done this thousands of times, but I just want to make sure. What does the word hope mean? Is hope a past-oriented word, present-oriented word, future-oriented word? It's kind of a present, future-oriented word. For hope, you don't look past, to particularly. You could, in the sense that God's been faithful to me in the past, will therefore be faithful to me in the future. But the living hope, it's, it's really fantastic how Peter does this. Living hope. Not a dead hope. It's a living hope. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. He's been resurrected. So it's a living hope. Hope must have a focus. And in the Christian faith, not what, but who is our focus? Jesus. Because he's alive. The grave is empty. And I've, you've heard me say this before. If the grave isn't empty, I mean, if the grave is, is, is not empty, he's still there. His bones are still there. Stop coming to this class. Because of that, I'm going to stop teaching. Because there's no hope. I'm worshiping a dead man. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we believe the lie. We are the most pitied of people. We have believed something that's not true. But then he says, but he is alive. Well, anyway, so Peter's really drilling that home. Our hope is a living hope. An energy and focus and enablement and power for life. Because of Jesus. Verse 4. The hope includes something tangible, tactile, measurable, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. ESV's translated those three Greek terms that way. They're, most of yours are probably very close to that. Now, I don't know about you, but that first part of verse 4 is downright, frankly, an incredible verse in the real meaning of that overused word. What's our inheritance? Let, let me rephrase the question. What are the parts of our inheritance? What are the dimensions and aspects of our inheritance? Pardon me? Heaven. Heaven. Kingdom, God's kingdom, being a part of it, citizen of it. Eternal life. Adoption. Adoption into his family. You're missing another really important one. A resurrected, glorified body. 
right? I mean, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. Nothing. The inheritance, the term inheritance, is all wrapped around the promises God's made to us. How many promises he made? We, what, about six maybe in these quick responses? And there are a lot more than that. Uh, I I have a little list that uh, I put together, 33 things that happen to you the moment you trust Christ. At least 33 I've been able to find. So all of that is what he's, and and every one of the aspects of the inheritance, the promises God's made to us are imperishable. What does that mean? What does imperishable mean? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, when you think it's something that's imperishable, it's it's never going to rot, it's never going to rust. I mean, uh, Peggy uh, eats a banana every, every, because of her heart condition and so on, she, doctor said, eat a banana. So every morning she eats a banana. This morning, the banana she ate, she said was horrible. Why? Because, I mean, she's a typical German. You don't waste anything. You know, so she ate a rotten banana. And she said it was horrible. That's perishable. A banana in summer, I don't know, a banana lasts about 24 hours. And it starts to rot. Not the inheritance God has for you. It's never going to rot, never going to rust. Undefiled. What does that mean? Untouched by anything that's evil. And it's unfading. That's the, the ESV editors have really translated that quite shrewdly, I think. Unfading. What happens? This well, this isn't a good shirt. Jim's is a little darker, or or uh, Fred's is a little darker. If they put their shirts out in the sun for uh, seven straight days, what's going to happen to those shirts? They're going to fade. The sun is going to cause them to fade. They're going to lose, you know, that penetrating red that Fred's wearing today. Or Fred's red tie, which is, that's a distinguished aristocratic look this morning. But, you know, it's still, if he leaves that tie out in the sun for five days, that'll fade. The inheritance of God's promise to you will never fade. I mean, he's just, he's dumping these words. And then he adds, he's not done, then he adds, it's kept in heaven for you. And that little word kept, I don't know if you remember that, is the same verb that was used in Jude verse 1, kept by the Father for the Son. Same word. So how do you know that God is going to keep his imperishable, undefiled, and unfading promise? Because the Father is keeping it in heaven for you. Now, I know we do not get excited about biblical truth in this Bible class, but that is a truth, I mean, to be excited about. It's like he's saying, I guarantee this. And I'm telling you, God's power, by God's power, not the who. Now, I think all of your translations start with that little relative pronoun, who. The who refers to the you of verse 4 and the us of verse 3. Who, the us and you, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I know it's late, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to ignore this. Greek word there is soterion. And that has three dimensions in the New Testament. It can mean justification. It can mean sanctification. 
and it can mean glorification. I'm writing real fast because we're almost out of time. The word salvation, the Greek word is soteria. The word salvation has three different nuances in the New Testament. Okay, salvation, justification, declared righteous, salvation from sin. Soterion, or soterion is sanctification. Uh, salvation from the, the power and presence of sin. Glorification, salvation from the total reign of sin in our life. <clears throat> okay, this happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the process by which the Holy Spirit is reducing the power of sin in our life. Glorification, when will that occur? At the end, when Jesus comes back. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 53. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So which one of these is he referring to? This. Because we know that because he says, in the last time, to be revealed. <clears throat> so, part of the inheritance that he's zeroing in on is our resurrected, glorified bodies, and it's, it's being guarded by the power of God. How certain does Peter want us to be that this is going to happen? I mean, he doesn't want us to have any question, any doubt. This will happen. And as Woody correctly said when he's reading from the introductory notes of his study Bible, this is a church that's under, to whom he's writing this letter that's undergone a lot of persecution and will endure a lot more. If you're going to be in persecution, don't you even remember this kind of stuff? You need to be armed for it. Yeah, I, I may be martyred for my faith. But if verse 3, 4, and 5 are true, which they are, that's okay. That's okay. The Father's going to take care of me. My inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. He's going to keep his promise to me. By the way, it's being kept by his power, guarded until the end. It's going to happen. So today we did three and a half verses. So it's, it's good stuff, isn't it? It's a rich, rich, rich book. So I, I thank, thank you for your good questions. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to get out of here. Lord, we're thankful for, um, well, we're thankful for the book of 1 Peter, that we have the privilege of studying together. Thank you for these men. Uh, the good questions, good interaction as we process the profound nature of the truth we've studied here. But it all keeps coming back to, basically and kind of foundationally to Jesus and what he's done for each and every one of us. Um, it, is his, it is the grace of God that's magnified in Jesus Christ that is the, um, the almost awesome measure of your love for us. It's beyond kind of quantification or putting a number on it. It's just an immeasurable demonstration of your grace. You didn't need to do that. You weren't required to do it. You weren't coerced to do it, but you love us and you paid the penalty for our sin, you paid the price of our rebellion, you paid the penalty of the rebellion, which is death, and you accomplished it all, and you laid the gift on the table for every human being to either pick it up or reject it. My prayer is, and I think it's true, every man in this room has picked the gift up. They are now in the family of God. 
all that Peter's been talking about applies to them. This imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is each and every one of us. It belongs to us. So as we go now our separate ways, uh, we ask for your blessing as we go, and as we always try to pray, Lord, enable us to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.